Peniel Joseph is the foremost scholar of the Black Power Movement and the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the University of Texas at Austin. He is the author of the award-winning Waiting to the Midnight Hour, a narrative history of Black Power in America. Along with the titles Dark Days, Bright Nights, Stokely a Life, and his most recent work, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. In this conversation, Joseph shares the roots of his interest in black power, his thoughts on critical race theory, and his abiding admiration for his beloved Haiti, the first black republic in the history of the world. Can you dig the white power structure and his racist police force and how they've escalated the situation? That before Watts, there was 1,300 cops. Now there's 6,000 cops patrolling black people. That in Oakland, they had 350 cops just three and a half years ago. Now they got 1,000 cops patrolling black people. San Francisco's double its police force. And every area, major, major metropolis where black people live all across this country, they've double, triple, and quadruple their police force, equipped them with tanks, all kinds. Uh-uh, we got to stop it, brother. Let's get together and unify. Black power means black dignity. Just as surely as you are proud to be white, we're proud to be black. Black is beautiful, baby. It's pretty. I'm not standing for violence, uh, but I do stand for self-defense. It's not a question of violence, aggressive violence. This is what people mostly think of. It's a question of defending ourselves and our people against the violence that's being waged upon us and has been waged upon us for the past 400 years. Number one, you ought to recognize it is not a riot, it is a rebellion. A rebellion. See, that's, I mean, that's another thing. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence. Um, without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. See, it's no in-between. You're either free or you're a slave. There's no such thing as second-class citizenship. We're going after the field Negroes first, and we'll get the house Negroes later. The future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives, it is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. They made everything black, ugly, and evil. Look in your dictionary and see the synonyms of the word black. It's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white, it's always something pure. But I want to get the language right tonight. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, Yes, I'm black, I'm proud of it, I'm black and beautiful. 
reason why we are even considered black people and African-American people is because of the black arts movement, because of black power, because of Stokely Carmichael, Malcolm X, Lorraine Hansberry. This is so many different people. James Cone. What the black power movement did is say that these institutions in the United States are bankrupt because of the way in which they treat black people and poor people, people of color. Dr. King didn't solve that. Malcolm X didn't solve that. We keep congratulating ourselves for a story that hasn't ended. It's gotten worse for most of the 40 million black people in the United States. Let me start by saying thank you for your time. I appreciate it very much. And let me also share with you, just for the sake of folks who may be listening to this for the first time, a little bit about what Recollect is. We are a platform celebrating the study of Pan-African history and culture. At the moment, we are a podcast and time will be a television program. But more important than either one of those two, we are in the process of producing the first annual Recollect Pan-African History Challenge, which will see four high school students competing in a Jeopardy level trivia contest for a substantial cash prize. And hopefully, knock on wood, that will take place next summer in Los Angeles. So I'm excited about that, excited about the podcast, excited about future television endeavors as well. So let me share with you why I think this particular conversation is so important. When we talk about international Pan-Africanism, as opposed to intercontinental Pan-Africanism, when we talk about international Pan-Africanism, particularly our segment of the story in the Americas, that story is usually rendered as slavery, violence, suffering, pain, blood, death, subjugation, degradation, humiliation, police brutality, the prison industrial complex, I can't breathe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you and I both know the truth of that story is real and then some, but that's not the kind of conversation I'm looking to have today. And that's not where we're looking to focus, at least at the outset. We're mostly concerned about our collective agency. Essentially, what are the mental, emotional, physical, political, cultural, spiritual responses to the conditions that we find ourselves in? So going back to the issue of why I think this conversation is so important is when I personally think of African agency in the Americas, what comes to mind to me is slave revolts, maroon communities, the Haitian Revolution, <laughs> Underground Railroad, African-American Union soldiers in the Civil War, the Black Church, uh, the Convention Movement, Black periodicals and newspapers, Marcus Garvey, African-American veterans, African-American civil rights organizations, conscious hip-hop, and two words that may or may not capture all of these things together. And that, of course, is black power. And seeing as you are the HNIC, when it comes to all things black power, there is no voice or perspective that is more relevant 
or valuable than yours. So would you be willing to provide a working definition or a working understanding of black power? And this is not meant to be a trivia question because as a scholar, your answer might be, well, the answer to black power is the multiple books that I've written on the subject. But if you're able to do a African-American studies 101 definition of black power, we can go from there. Well, certainly, uh, you know, thank you for this platform and everything that you're doing. Um, you know, I would, I would define black power as a movement for radical social, political, cultural, economic self-determination. And I would say that when you define it that capaciously, it's very, very inclusive, including, you know, we think about, I think, like you were talking about earlier, this idea of pan-Africanism and, and loss instead of what does it have, right? So I think a lot of times we define Black power as heteronormative. We define it as sexist. We define it as all these different things, which it actually is in part, right? You can even define it as pro-capitalist. But there's another vision that's very, very expansive that that uh, that radical um, self-determination during Black power is actually intersectional. Uh, and you know this too, there were Black men who were feminist. There were Black men uh, who were uh, talking about protecting queer folks, right? So we weren't all just one thing. And that we had that, that multiplicity even within organizations like the Black Panthers and SNCC, right? Even within the Nation of Islam uh, and King's movement too, right? So it straddles, it's as complex as all of us. And I think one of the things that we, we, we've done negatively to Black Power, you, we retcon it by saying it, it's all of one thing, whether that's uh, Karanga's Us organization or even Amiri Amir Baraka and, and, and C-Fund, you know, or, or Congress of African People. And so I would say when you think about that radical um, cultural uh, and political um, and economic self-determination, it's, it's very capacious. It's actually Black people defining the phenomena that affects their lives for themselves. And people are going to do that in different ways. And I think just like some scholars have talked about a long civil rights movement, and I know you know this, there's also been a long Black power movement. You know, So when I think about the work of people like Vince Brown and Tacky's Revolt, you know, that's Black power in the, the 16th and 17th century of Jamaica. Certainly Black power, uh, the Haitian Revolution, and I'm Haitian, is that too. Uh, but it's very, very capacious. And I go back to somebody like Vincent Harding uh, and There is a River. And when he is writing There is a River, he's talking about Black power in the context of the Middle Passage. But there's also Black power before the Middle Passage and before uh, uh, connections with European conquest. And I think one of the things um, Tacky's Revolt and other books show is uh, these wars within wars. Whites can come together and discuss the common cause, but whenever a few of us come together, the world is shook up. And I say, whatever went back there is our business. Reverend King, do you agree? Oh, yes, yes. We had a very good discussion uh, on uh, many matters. And of course, these are not things that we would discuss here, 
but uh, we do have common problems and common concerns. And above all, as uh, Muhammad Ali has just said, uh, we are all victims of the same system of oppression. And even though we may have different religious uh, beliefs, uh, this does not at all That's bring right. about a difference in terms brothers. of our concerns. Still brothers. So the same kind of ethnic conflicts that we had in Europe, we had uh, different kinds in Africa, but they were conflicts. They were conflicts, right? So, you know, when you think about that definition of black power, I think it's really capacious and theoretical uh, and practical. But a lot of times we make an argument, one, coming out of the 1960s and, and sort of Stokely Carmichael and Black Panthers and Angela Davis and Rat Brown, much bigger than that. Two, we, 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 we uh, only want to focus on um, the politics of masculinity and the negative aspects, because just like when you think about masculinity and femininity, um, um, there's going to be positive and negatives to both of those, right? You know, so we can't, you know, so is there a, such a thing as toxic masculinity? Of course it is. But we can't say somehow all of masculinity is bad. And, and, and as somebody who's been engaged in feminist thought for Black feminist thought for over 28 years, uh, it, it's, it's not um, like Black feminist thought is even arguing that all of um, feminist thought is 100% correct, right? Because you're not trying to replace one kind of orthodoxy with, an, with another. It's, 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 it's really pan, panoramic and, and a blending, right? Um, and even in that blending, we're going to have disagreements. We're going to have disagreements. It can't be, when you think about this age of Black Lives Matter, that you're just going to try to tow any political line, even though we should be for human rights, racial justice, right? Uh, Anti-racism. So that's what I would say for Black Power, how we define it. It's really big and capacious. And then it becomes what different case studies and different specific uh, movements, organizations, circas, uh, you know, continents, towns um, that we're going to be dealing with. But it's, it's really the, the positive of the last, especially 20 years of the work done on Black Power Studies is people have uh, finally scratched below the surface of, of, of what a big deal Black Power is because it's a reflection of us, what a big deal Black people and African people are, Caribbean people globally. white people in this country associate black power with violence. And the question is because of their own inability to deal with blackness. If we had said Negro power, nobody would get scared. <laughs> everybody would support it. Uh, if we said power for colored people, everybody would be for that. But it is the word black. It is the word black that bothers people in this country. And that's their problem, not mine. Their problem. I'm never going to be putting that trick back. I am all black and I'm all good. <laughs> Anything all black is not necessarily bad. Anything all black is only bad when you use force to keep whites out. Now, that's what white people have done in this country, and they're projecting their same fears and guilt on us, and we won't have it. We won't have it. Let them handle their own fears and their own guilt. Let them find their own psychologists. We refuse to be the therapy for white society any longer. We have gone mad trying to do it. We have gone stop raising mad trying to do it. I look at Dr. King on television every single day. 
And I say to myself, now there is a man who is desperately needed in this country. There is a man full of love. There is a man full of mercy. There is a man full of compassion. But every time I see Lyndon on television, I said, Martin, baby, you got a long way to go. I want to talk about your life and your legacy with your considerable talent. What puts you on the path to what you are now and who you are now? What was the seed? What was the inspiration for the intellectual and academic and professional choices that you've made around black power studies? You know, I, the, 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 the seeds are my mother, you know, my mother who's 82 years young. I just visited for the first time since the pandemic still lives in Queens, New York. I grew up in Brooklyn and New in Queens, New York um, city. Uh, and my mom is retired now, but she was a hospital worker, uh, 1199 uh, SCIU union. Um, and so I was on my purse uh, picket line in elementary school. Uh, my mom is a hospital worker who's also a writer and intellectual uh, and, and a bibliophile. So um, we had at the house, and I read in elementary school, um, CLR James's The Black Jacobins. We had France Fanon at the house. Came out the uh, gate had, strong. <laughs> yeah, we, we, it was very interesting. We, we had Black feminists. Uh, everything from Angela Davis, Audre Lorde. We had all, you know, Tony Cade Bambara's The Black Woman at the house. So this is way before starting <laughs> high school or anything. And my mom is a big history buff of the Haitian Revolution. So she got me interested in all of this, you know. So at home, uh, this was part of the conversation, but also because she was part of a labor union, um, she was interested in protest and agitation. Um, and how protests and agitation could actually, I remember uh, picket lines and strikes and we had as a family, no dental care. And then after the strikes, we had dental care. And she's like, we're all going to the dentist. And we were like, what? <laughs> we, were going to, we didn't go to this dentist figure before, we got checkups before. <laughs> and she's like, well, this is part of the deal now, right? And so you started to get your teeth cleaned and you started to get, you know, so it was, it was real. Like in my household, it was real. And so, you know, when I was in junior high school, a few things happened. Um, Eyes on the Prize premiered, but also Michael Griffith in, um, in New York City was murdered uh, by a white mob in Howard Beach my freshman year in December of 1986. And so, you know, all those things uh, really connected together in my life to make me uh, want to study the Black Power period. And, you know, very early on, I fell in love with uh, Malcolm X, you know, way before the Denzel Washington and Public mm -hmm. Enemy. Uh, we had the autobiography of Malcolm X at the crib. Mm -hmm. So again, like you're, 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 you know, I was very interested in this history anyway, but I think if you're part of a Black family where, where you know, irrespective of how much money is around, where there's this Black radical intellectual tradition, uh, then you're fine. You're, you, your kids, everybody's fine because even as you, it wasn't necessarily getting this history K through 12, we were getting it. We were getting it. And we brought it up in classes. Um, by high school, I was organizing to have them teach Black history at the high school. So, um, you know, and then the deeper I got into Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., but also figures like William Worthy, Gloria Richardson, uh, you know, Angela Davis, Lorraine Hansberry. And, and, you know, as you know, brother, this becomes this lifelong pursuit. So you, you pursue it, you pursue it, 
And initially I thought I was gonna be more of a day-to-day uh, community organizer. And I went to a state school in New York, Stony Brook, and I met black professors um, um, for the first time. And so I didn't know anything about getting a PhD or any of that stuff. And uh, I, I, I went to school at 17, I finished up uh, in three years, so I was 20 and, and they suggested going into a PhD pro- program. I got into Temple University uh, into the history department and there was a thriving black studies program there too. Um, and I was doing black history, I was doing black history, um, but also Africana studies, I was, I was interested in both. And so, um, you know, I, that's what got me, you know, interested in, in uh, Black power. But Mumia Bujamal, um, Reverend Herbert Dowertree, there's so many different community activists on the ground. Sonny Carson was in New York City, um, Ramona Africa. There's so many different people who I've met and encountered along the way. At Temple, Sonia Sanchez became one of my advisors, uh, the, 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 the iconic poet uh, and activist and scholar. So all of that really got me interested in, in this. Brings to mind the whole critical race theory argument. What are your thoughts on this quote unquote controversy? Well, I mean, you know, briefly, I mean, the controversy over critical race theory is very similar to the lost cause where the lost cause invents a lie about American history Um, that becomes victorious narratively. So the lie is that white supremacy was a good thing. Racial slavery was a good thing. The Civil War wasn't fought over racial slavery. Uh, The only bad thing was so-called Negro rule. And that's why you needed racial terror uh, to to extinguish Negro rule, right? Um, And the Dunning School of Reconstruction history, all this racism, racism on top of racism. And so critical race theory continues that the anti-critical race theory discourse is just an extension of the lost cause uh, under a new guise, you know, and initially they tried to attack Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 project. Rhetorically, that didn't have enough bite and a conservative blogger just said, well, what about critical race theory, which is really um, just a, you know, a, a branch of critical legal studies. Right. And, and certainly it's, um, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw and the late Derek Bell and using storytelling, uh, Richard Delgado, Ian Lopez, Patricia Williams, you know. Uh, so that's just a theory of, of legal history that centers race and then over time, class, gender, sexuality. But no, all this is is an extension of the lost cause, you know. So on some levels, it's positive to the extent that it shows you that um, after 2020, uh, Black radical traditions were sort of seeping into the K through 12. Uh, through the 1619 Project and others' anti-racist discourse. Um, certainly it's negative in the sense that if it goes hand in hand with this new era of redemption um, and, and voter suppression and just anti-Black violence and white supremacy. I will resist going on a soapbox, but I do want to ask you, a lot of the fact that you are Haitian, what are your thoughts historically, culturally, and politically? about what's happening um, in Haiti. Oh boy, sac passé, not Um You know, Haiti has been um, attacked and assaulted, you know, for over 200 years, ever since becoming, you know, transforming a colony of enslaved uh, Africans uh, into a republic of, of black citizens uh, for the first time in world history. 
And so, you know, what, what most of Haiti's problem has been, you know, Haiti was the target of the first embargo by the United States under Thomas Jefferson. Haiti had an indemnitude, um, uh, the French government, um, money that Haiti did not owe, that France said it owed, that helped cripple the finances, you know? And then you connect that to the fact that, look, like a lot of other places, including the United States, it has an uneven history of democratic attainment and achievement. That's all, you know, the Haiti is very similar to the United States. The United States, the best thing you can say about the United States is that it's an aspiring democracy. It's not a genuine democracy now, nor has it ever been, but it has those aspirations. And you could say the same thing about Haiti. Haiti is an aspiring democracy. And what we see a lot of times, aspiring democracies fall flat on their faces. In the case of the United States, it's a civil war with over 700,000 people dead. I want everybody to know, in democracies, you don't have civil wars. So it wasn't a democracy, right? I just want, <laughs> and in a democracy, right, right. a thriving democracy, you don't have a white supremacist riot at the U.S. Capitol. So all we can say, and again, people lie and say other things, but we are an aspiring democracy. So Haiti is, is similar with, with even less resources has had to endure invasions in the way the United States has never had an invasion. You can talk about the War of 1812, but that's quickly repelled, right? Um, has had to do with deal with colonialism, imperialism, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and of course, at times, internal corruption. Just like the United States has dealt with the most corrupt president in American history, the Trump mm -hmm. administration. So it's very similar. A lot of things that they try to teach us in school that we are good and everybody else is a racist banana republic or a third world country. They are us and we are them. And I think the very fact that uh, these last four or five humiliating years globally, uh, we could see the obvious fact, right? So uh, I think Haiti needs a lot of help, but it needs self-determination. And certainly it would need um, to allow grassroots leadership to hold free and fair elections, uh, reimagine public safety, but the whole entire infrastructure of Haiti needs to be built up. Haiti's had more uh, NGO reps um, per capita than any other place in the United States, than any other place in the world. Um, and you saw that uh, post-earthquake, all you have are neoliberal investors who take the best beaches, the best houses, uh, the best bodies, and super exploit them rapaciously under the guise of philanthropy. <laughs> so that's the Haitian story, right? That's the Haitian story. So people talk about how resilient the Haitian people are, dying of cholera, dying of malnutrition, but it's not that somehow it's the poorest country in the Western hemisphere and the benevolent, beneficent West has been trying to help them and they can't get out of their way. Uh, this is not the fault of the Haitians. This is a continuation of uh, neo-colonialism instead of post-colonialism. And of course, there's gonna be a 1%, just like there's a 1% here who has corruption, graft, and wealth, what Cornell West calls gangster capitalism. You've got gangster capitalists in Haiti, but you've got gangster capitalists uh, in the United States as well. So that's the story of, of Haiti in a nutshell. The positive is, is how the Haitian revolution has impacted us. Like we wouldn't have not had black liberation, black freedom, abolition democracy without the Haitian revolution. Can you speak a little bit more to that? How did the Haitian revolution 
undergird those other movements. Oh, it, it, hugely. It's just like when we think about Tacky's revolt and what happened in Jamaica in 1760, 1761, 1766, that, that, that creates, Haiti created a, a transatlantic circuitry of, of Black radicalism, uh, of Black political self-determination. Uh, there are some um, even Jamaicans who, who, who were kicked out of Jamaica, Africans kicked out of Jamaica who, who wound up in Saint-Domingue. Um, so the, the Haitian Revolution is something that uh, David Walker and R Mariah Stewart and, and Francis Harper and Frederick Douglass, who becomes an ambassador to Haiti, all hear about. Um, and and it, it, it impacts uh, uh, plans for rebellion. It impacts uh, maronage that did exist in the South Carolina, uh, the coastal sea islands, even, even on our watch, right? Um, so the fact that people know who Toussaint Louverture is the Black Spartacus, you know, he's, he's the um, true uh, architect of, of Western liberation that people like Thomas Jefferson and the folks of the French Rev Revolution uh, have proclaimed they really did it in Haiti, right? And so Haiti becomes unbelievably important both as a symbol, but also um, substantively, uh, because people find out what happened there and how they expanded their notions of freedom and citizenship uh, and, you know, liberty, egalitarian, uh, uh, equality, fraternity, and how that they brought that to life. And people want to do it right here in the United States. So and that revolution still continues to, for those who sort of embark on the challenge of finding out that history, continues to reverberate all the way till, until today. And then shifting back, are there lessons in Black Power that can be applied to what's happening in Haiti currently? Yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons. Um, I think one of the things that Black Power, and this connects to Black Lives Matter too, is that the Black Power movement really is extraordinarily important in terms of thinking about structures. Black Power has a structural critique of American democracy, of US capitalism, of global imperialism. That's, that's what's so important about, about Black Power. And then certain civil rights activists are gonna come on in to the fold, but it, you know, Malcolm had that critique too. He said America was this searing racial wilderness and it's over time that King comes into the fold because King is trying to play good cop to the bad cop. You know, all these lofty words, you know, I have a dream, even though he's this brilliant uh, figure, but he's not embracing that black power style radicalism. Uh, and again, you know, like with any ideology or movement, of course, there are some people who are going to define black power as just black capitalism. And Nixon tries to do that too, right? But by and large, black power en masse had this huge vibrant structural critique of racism and inequality and violence. And you see that with Black Lives Matter um, as well. Black Lives Matter, and it will connect us to Haiti, uh, argued that um, the criminal justice system represented a panoramic gateway to multiple institutions of oppression, multiple institutions of oppression. Um, and that connected to food justice, connected to black women's maternal health outcomes, trans lives, black trans women lives mattering, uh, public school segregation, uh, environmental racism, uh, tax policy, immigration policy, the works, and we can see it in the policy plan, the Black Lives Matter policy plan. The way in which this impacts Haiti is in this way. The lessons of a Black power movement um, 
are, are numerous, but one of the biggest ones is that it's very important to tell the truth and to speak your truth. Uh, but Black Power also shows us the resilience of state-sanctioned violence uh, and really neoliberal violence in the global arena. And I think Haiti, it's, it's a mix because Haiti is still within that transnational reality of countries of color being dominated externally by the so-called first world, but then also being dominated internally by a corrupt class of oligarchs, right? So even as you are able, there was a feeling which turned out to be not 100% correct that if we could identify the problem, we ergo would find the solution. And that's where you even see somebody like Kwame Touré, African socialism, scientific socialism. Like we see the challenges and we're gonna systematically, scientifically under, in, in Kwame Touré's case, um, in Kruma Toureism, find the solution, right? Um, not, not quite, I understand the formulation, but we've seen all of it is more elastic than that, right? So finding, finding and critically examining and having all the social scientific data to say, here's why there are water shortages and food shortages and inequality and kids are dying and wars are happening, doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna be able to end all of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even if you share your, not just theory, but your data, your facts with the masses of people. That's what we found out. And I think that's where BLM has been even more granular in certain ways than Black Power, even though they're taking it from the Black Power movement to, to try multiple different strategies all at once. They're trying to run people for office. They've gotten into the policy weeds, not just with the George Floyd and uh, in policing, Justice and Policing Act, but, but in terms of defunding the police was always brilliant in a policy sense. They looked to see in the org chart, the pie, where was the money going? And they said, the cops, we've got to stop it. We've got to shift this money, right? So they didn't even ask for just the new infusion of money. They brilliantly said, let's shift this money. Now, of course, white supremacy is going to uh, strike back, just like the movie, The Empire Strikes Back. White supremacy strikes back always, right? But that, that was very, very... Uh, in, in important. So when you think about Haiti, I think we understand the problems of Haiti, but just because you understand the problems doesn't mean you have enough power to manifest solutions. And you also have to have humility. I think one of the lessons of Black Power is to have humility in the sense of, um, and I like this about BLM, that they're trying multiple things. They're trying to raise money. They're trying to utilize corporate money. They're trying to utilize the grassroots. It's kind of like all hands on deck, right? It's not gonna be, there's no one magic bullet because the problems, the breadth and depth of the problems are too wide and too expansive, right? So I think they've been great on that, that front too. And they've been finally vis-a-vis -vis Haiti on the front of global black solidarity. We've seen people uprising in Nigeria, uh, in Oxford, in London, in Germany, uh, all over. Uh, in support of Black Lives Matter. Uh, you see the, the brothers who play the Euro Cup who were castigated for missing the penalty kicks, right? So, so this is a worldwide problem. And I think the, 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 the racial solidarity and the, the, the radical revolutionary Pan-Africanism that comes out of Black power understands it as that. But I think now we can see 
uh, 50, 60 years later, it's also even more complex because like you said, the distinction between uh, intercontinental or continental and international pan-Africanism. Um, look, brother, we got some corruption in Africa, right? And a lot of that corruption in Africa is connected to the US and Western imperialists. They murder Patrice Lumumba's and then you are left with these other, this other group, I'm not even gonna name folks, but who are corrupt, who are doing all kinds of terrible things, but they don't want that Lumumba in there. They don't want that person who, who is got all the integrity and sincerity in the world. They don't want that because they felt Lumumba was gonna be another Castro. And the Belgian Congo had even more resources than Cuba, right? And so can you imagine what Lumumba could have done, right? With his own army, with his own, yeah. So, you know, we, we have to understand that it's more complicated, right? It's more complicated. So I think, I think the big solution for Black, um, lesson of Black power is this lesson of moving towards radical Black citizenship and dignity, um, understanding state-sanctioned power and violence, uh, but that Black people, if, they, if they're united, um, can actually overcome that. And I think last year was a great example of that. I mean, without Black radical unity that then inspired millions of whites as well, you would not have had uh, a new president. And, you know, the Biden administration has passed a $1.9 trillion pandemic that included some money, which was halted uh, for Black farmers, but they're giving out checks starting tomorrow, $300 for kids. Black people did that. We did that. And so we can't, part of it is like, we've got to spread the word so that in these subsequent elections, we are even more galvanized. Stacey Abrams did that. We did that. We put Kamala Harris in. But when I, when I even speak to students and people, what are the tangible benefits? The tangible benefits are the pandemic bill is going to put, uh, uh, take 50% kids out of the poverty line, right? Above the poverty line. The, disproportionately, those are our kids. So we did that. So the same way some people, you know, they didn't vote for Hillary in 2016 and they're culpable in what Trump did to immigrants, including black immigrants, we, we did that. So we pushed the needle of history last year. We put a black man in the Senate in Georgia who is presiding over Dr. King's church and we've got to get him a full six year term in 2022, we did that. And we dragged John Ossoff along with him, this Jewish American brother, we dragged him we did that. So we transformed the Senate and we changed the game. And, and, you know, I think that can be done in Haiti, that can be done in Africa, including Nigeria and places that look, they, they are suffering. They are suffering from corruption, but they are suffering from different versions of the same state sanctioned violence that we are, are suffering from. The police the same way. They put their club upside your head and then turn around and accuse you of attacking them. Every case of police brutality against a Negro follows the same pattern. They attack you, bust you all upside your mouth, and then take you to court and charge you with assault. What kind of democracy is that? What kind of uh, freedom is that? What kind of social or political system is it when a black man has no voice in court, right. has no nothing on his side other than what the white man right. chooses to give him. Right. My brothers and sisters, we have to put a stop to this. Right. And it will never be stopped until we stop it ourselves. Right. So the purpose of the platform 
remembering who we are. Mm-hmm. And to me, there's no greater example of that than the cultural components of the Black Power movement. Would you agree with that? I would agree with you because I think what the cultural components of Black Power did, and I'm thinking about everybody from Lorraine Hansberry to Sonia Sanchez, Nikki Giovanni, uh, you know, Tefella Kuti, Marcus Garvey, uh, Malcolm X, um, Elijah Muhammad, uh, uh, you know, so so many different people, Fran Beale, uh, Tony Cade Bambara, Audre Lorde, James Baldwin. Um, you know, there's now uh, retrospectives on the work of um, um, uh, Kamal Brathwaite, and and uh, I'm doing something at UT for that. Uh, AJAZ, African Jazz Arts Society, uh, Penumbra. Um, you know, there's so many different, um, the Komoinga Com- Com- uh, Photography Collective with Roy DiCarava and so many other people. Uh, certainly the Black Arts Movement, BARTS, uh, Black Arts Repertory Theater and School, which was Sonia Sanchez and Amiri Baraka, uh, Larry Neal, um, um, Gail Addison, uh, you know, uh, uh, Julian Mayfield, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, Ruby D, Ozzie Davis. What Black art does in the cultural component is really provide a tangible context for what we think of as Pan-Africanism, independent Black schools. Um, of course, Black is beautiful. Um, it's connection to Africa and the Caribbean, right? Um, um, black art, what is a black aesthetic? Uh, uh, um, Kwanzaa and different holidays and festivals. Um, finding out about African history and Egyptian history in our place in a global context. Uh, there are all threads that, that predate the modern black power era, which is why it's a long black power movement. But certainly in this, this uh, you know, I would say you, you asked before, what are some of the beats everyone should know? I mean, mm-hmm. I think people should know about um, um, 1955 and the Bandung uh, Afro-Asian Conference. You know, you should know about, uh, uh, you know, M- Malcolm X uh, coming to Harlem, West 116th Street. You should know about Lorraine Hansberry even before the Raisin in the Sun because she provides a context uh, for an understanding of, of Black arts from both uh, a highbrow, and, and, and folk uh, and middle brow, you know, mm-hmm. she's all of it, all at once, young, gifted and black, right? Like Zora Neale Hurston. Um, uh, you know, the work of the black studies movements, right? And so many different students like a Stokely Carmichael uh, who are on the front lines creating black student unions in California and in New York and in every place in between. So it's very, very um, important. Um, and it's very, you know, the art, the, the cultural movement is going to be both African-centered, Caribbean-centered. There's an Afro-Latinx um, component of this because you had New Yorkans and other people connected to it. Uh, Black women are going to be key, and you're seeing second wave Black feminism. Uh, you know, you're, you're just seeing so much, and it's so rich uh, that it impacts all of us, and it continues to impact all of us, right? Where you see that there, there, there are these millions, billions of ways of being Black, and we're trying to connect them all together uh, for this panoramic identity that allows you uh, to both fight systems of oppression, but also to thrive in being who you are as this Black person, right? That Black is, is beauty, but, but there's a self-care and a wellness. Uh, you know, this is all connected. The Black Panther's using acupuncture 
to detox folks and get folks off drugs. You know, they say capitalism plus dope equals genocide. Uh, the, 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 the movement to try to transform uh, prisons uh, into, into um, really pan-African paradises, right? Um, building a new art, right? Newark, New Jersey into a new arc, right? Uh, that's that's huge and it's beautiful. And we impacted, again, we impacted uh, uh, the Studio Museum of Harlem. We impacted a mural movement. Uh, we impacted Black people being able to have access to amusement parks and swimming pools. Uh, we impacted, um, we think about Muhammad Ali and his global image, right? What, you know, what a, you know, uh, what a global image and what did that mean? Uh, uh, Malcolm and Malcolm's global image. So it's really huge. And we do it in the gospel, the blues, um, again, Fela Kuti. We've just had the brilliant documentary Summer of Soul by Quest Love. And when you see that uh, 1969, the same time that the moon landing occurred over the, the few days, we, we, you see our Afro-Caribbean um, African roots on display with Nina Simone and Fela Kuti, Stevie Wonder, uh, the Fifth Dimension. Uh, uh, Max Roach and Abby Lincoln are the Black Power couple extraordinaire, and I write about them in Waiting Till the Midnight Hour, you know? Right. And so- You talk um, about Aussie, uh, you talk about Aussie and Ruby alongside- Aussie and Ruby too. Yeah. Um, cultural women of African heritage with Maya Angelou Make, Maya Make at the time, married to the African diplomat Vus Make. We went to uh, uh, Ghana and we were expats there and organizing there. Uh, we were in Nigeria, we were everywhere. So I think that the arts movement and that component really provided us a context. Um, that's how we got Barack Obama. That's how we got, even as Obama was not this, this black radical, right? And I, I wrote a book years ago where people confuse what I give my argument. It was called From Black Power to B Barack Obama, Dark Days, Bright Nights, where mm -hmm. I wasn't making an argument that Obama was the representation of black power. I was making an argument that without black power, this person would have never been elected. It wasn't just civil rights and John Lewis, the cats he was given credit to. It was all these people he wasn't given credit to who changed the game, who changed the game. That was the whole point, right? It's not about him. I get him and his politics and neoliberalism. And, and, but I also get that symbolically, he's still so important to African people in the United States that people protect him and Michelle. I've, I've got a picture with Michelle. I've had a chance to meet her. Michelle Obama, the first lady, still our first lady, brilliant and, and somebody we're gonna praise. So it becomes that people don't understand that you can have a critique, but also understand why the people adore the, 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 this couple. You know what I mean? That the couple means more than just the couple themselves. It's a reflection of us for our babies, for right. our dignity, for right. our citizenship, even when we've disagreed with them. That's what people don't understand. Right. My, my daughters were born under the Obama presidency and it was- a, Mine too. Mine, mine she's yeah. six, but she was born in 2015. She was mm -hmm. born under, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, that, so that, that means a lot. What happened is that some of our philosophers got off base. And one of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, polar opposites, so that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. It was this misinterpretation that caused uh, the philosopher Nietzsche 
was the philosopher of the will to power, to reject the Christian concept of love. It was the same misinterpretation which induced Christian theologians to reject Nietzsche's philosophy of the will to power in the name of the Christian idea of love. Now we got to get this thing right. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best. Power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. But in closing, on the scholarship front, what else needs to be studied in the realm of Black power? Well, I think they're doing it. There's a lot of great stuff on Black women, you know, people like um, Ashley Farmer, my colleague here uh, on Black women and Black power. Um, uh, you know, expanding the terrain of what we think of Black power, the work of Keisha Blaine and looking at the early 20th century, Robin Spencer and the Black Panthers. There's, there's, there's a whole lot. Um, we could have more biographies. You know, I've done one on Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, uh, Angela Davis, Sonia Sanchez. There's so many uh, others that, that, that need. We still need more um, case studies on groups like the Black Panthers and groups like SNCC and others. Um, I think we should think about Black power in the context of its impact on American democracy, uh, Black power and its impact on American culture, both popular culture, but highbrow folk culture, museum, uh, movies um, and film, right? Um, black power and music. So I think there's a lot, but then also in the context of statecraft and the geopolitics of Black power, right? And the impact that Black Power has on the Cold War. A lot of people won't talk about Congressman Charles Diggs and won't talk about the Student Organization of Black Unity, the Youth Organization of Black Unity and their impact on America's Africa policy. So we've got a great new book on Mickey Leland and Africa policy, but there's all these Black Power folks who transform Africa policy. No one wants to talk about them. <laughs> you know, no. So, so I, I think there's a lot, lot more uh, because I think the movement is um, so, so capacious. But then it's, tr it's, it's transformation in the 80s, the 90s, and the evolution of Black power to Black Lives Matter, because you wouldn't have Black Lives Matter without all these uh, Black power activists who helped people like Harold Washington get elected, who helped transform cities like Chicago and other places, and who, who, who kept uh, the burning embers of that movement alive. So my final example would be um, a brother, um, uh, the, the brother uh, who, o Omali uh, Yeshitela, uh, who, who used to be formerly Joe Waller and a colleague of Stokely Carmichael uh, in St. Petersburg, Petersburg, Florida. And in 2008, when Obama was um, running for president, there was a C-SPAN event where they were booing Obama. They were saying, what about the black community, Obama? This is before he was even elected. And people like uh, Brother Omali Yeshitela, uh, and he's got his African Socialist Party, all these different stuff, they kept the embers alive. There were Black women who kept the embers alive. Some of them have been part of Afrocentric and African-centered collectives. Some of them have been part of socialist and Marxist uh, collectives. Some of them have been part of Black nationalist collectives, right? But they continued to organize and fight, move uh, in, in Philadelphia, Ramona, Africa, 
uh, Mumia Abu Jamal. These are folks who continued, 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 right? And 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 they, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, they deserve a lot of praise and credit um, and criticism as well, right? The, the Black Radical Congress, uh, National Black Independent Politics, MBIP, right? Uh, the works of people like Manning Marable and others, right? Uh, it's very, very important here. Uh, and I think there's gonna be studies that push us into the 80s and 90s and how this, this continued. Do you know what your next book is gonna be? Yeah, I'm writing a book on, on uh, America's third reconstruction right now and, and uh, looking at the period of 2008 to 2021, but also going back uh, and looking at the first reconstruction and the civil rights movement as the second reconstruction. So that's, the, that's what I'm working on. Well, I look forward to talking about that when the time comes. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Black power remains the most misunderstood social movement of the post-war era. It was demonized as the civil rights movement's, quote, evil twin and stereotyped as a politics of rage practiced by gun-toting Black Panthers. Because of this, the movement's supple intellectual provocations, pragmatic local character, and domestic and foreign policy critiques remain on the fringes of America's memory of the 1960s. Nonetheless, Black Power's cultural and political flourishes, militant posture, and provocative rhetoric permanently altered the contours of American identity, citizenship, and democracy. Peniel Joseph. Recollect is a production of Recollect Media. Special thanks to Madi Donham and the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. To connect with Peniel Joseph, you can do so on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. You can also find him on Instagram at Dr. Peniel Joseph. To purchase books and to support independent booksellers, please visit our collection at bookstore.org. To test your knowledge of the Black Power Movement and to learn more about people mentioned in this episode, please be sure to check out the show notes. To learn more about our other shows and events, including the first annual Pan-African History Challenge, please visit our website at www.recollect.media. History is not just his story or her story or my story. It is our story. It is with us. It is alive. And it will survive as long as the truth shall live. Never forget, never, ever forget who you are.